The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Those people who live in these four regions are becoming our citizens forever. We all expected this. It was predicted, but nonetheless shocking. The United States will never, never recognize Russia's claims on Ukraine sovereign territory. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top name. The power uh, is a big issue. The water was up over the rooftop. We had a Coast Guard rescue swimmer identify that it appeared to be human remains. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Vladimir Putin says the annexation is forever. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the Russian president completes Europe's biggest land grab since World War II, the UN calls the move illegal. The US is cranking up the sanctions. We'll be joined at this critical point in the war in Ukraine by Michael O'Hanlon, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Later this hour, Hurricane Ian makes landfall for a second time after leading a, leaving a wide path of destruction in Florida. We'll get the latest from Bloomberg's Will Wade, who is still in Florida surveying the damage and we'll look at a wild week in politics with our signature panel bloomberg contributors rick davis and Jeannie shanzano are with us for the hour everyone saw it coming but it was still startling to hear from vladimir putin today as he formalized russia's annexation of what is 15 percent of ukraine the the regions we've talked about throughout the war kherson zaporizhia donetsk and luhansk Four territories. He spoke to a massive white ballroom full of lawmakers and elite, as we hear through a translator. I want uh, the Kiev authorities and their real masters in the West to hear me and remember those, those people who live in these four regions are becoming our citizens forever. Our citizens forever. Now, of course, the international community condemns this move as illegal. We have heard from the U.N. on this. Putin clearly does not see it that way. Here he is again. It is uh, their lawful right, which is stated in the uh, in Article 1 of the Charter of the United Nations for people's right for self-determination. Uh, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, says in a statement, quote, the charter is clear. Any annexation of a state's territory by another state resulting from the threat or use of force is a violation of the charter. Here's reaction today from the White House. President Biden. The United States, I want to be very clear about this. The United States will never, never, never recognize Russia's claims on Ukraine sovereign territory. And more where that came from, uh, the U.S. increasing pressure today on Russia with who knew there were more sanctions uh, that we could add here. Sanctions against the head of Russia's central bank, its deputy prime minister, hundreds of other prominent Russians and businesses. The Commerce Department adding 57 entities to its Russian export blacklist. And of course, there's a lot of worry that Putin could use the annexation 
which again covers 15% of Ukraine as grounds for escalation. Will he see an attack on land that Ukraine considers its own as an attack on sovereign Russian territory? This is getting more dangerous and certainly more complex. And we wanted to talk about it with Michael O'Hanlon, author and senior fellow and director of research in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. He's with us now. Michael, thank you for being here. Will this this move by Putin lead to a wider war? Well, thank you. And thank you for the excellent framing of the issue. I think your point that Russia may want us to believe that at least in their own, you know, Russian minds, this is now Russian territory, the swath of land from the Donbass over to Crimea. I think that's, you know, that's possible. On the other hand, you know, Ukraine's been attacking Crimea in various states of this fight, Russian positions in Crimea Mm -hmm. and Russia annexed Crimea quite a while ago, you know, according to Russia's own rules and regulations and Putin's view. So I don't know that we need to be scared of our own shadow on this. I don't think that we Mm -hmm. need to sort of hold back the Ukrainians from trying to liberate more of these four provinces just because Russia might manufacture some argument that even Putin would know is ridiculous and therefore justify an opportunity for further retaliation. You know, Putin, um, I think when he talks and when he speaks and when he writes, there's at least two different levels of, of seriousness and maybe three. One is what he really believes. And he actually sometimes tells you what he really believes, like that yeah. essay he wrote last summer or the mm-hmm. Munich security speech of 2007 when he railed against the West and all of its supposed offenses against him and against Iraq and Georgia, Ukraine. Then there's the Putin that is manufacturing pretexts for something he already wants to do, right. like invoking the UN Charter to defend this annexation. And then there's the Putin that just flat out lies. Uh, and that's <laughs> and that's and that's in regard to things like, you know, interfering in our elections or right, arming sure. separatists in Donbass. And you've, you sort of got to think hard about which level of communication are you dealing with with Putin, because they're all relevant and they're not that hard to tell apart. Uh, you know, but but of course, he, he's trying to use them all in a way that's confusing and at least maybe yeah. for his own people and for some wavering countries around the world, maybe they're not as sure about. And they were all in that speech today. All those all three of those Putins you mentioned have played a role in this address. But you yes. mentioned Crimea. That's interesting. This was informed by what he did in Crimea. How is it different? Well, it's different in the sense that you know, if you're going to have a good old fashioned high school or college debate or something like that, you could you could you could put pretty smart people on each side of the Crimea issue as to whose it should rightly be and have a, a good long conversation without having to bring in Russian duplicity. Doesn't whatever justify the way Putin took it in 2014, of course. But mm-hmm. but you could certainly argue that historically, uh, if you, you know, if you go back centuries, Crimea was occupied by the Ottoman Turks for a while, and it just had a much sure. more complicated role in, in Russian and Ukrainian history than some central parts of the country. Beyond and, the case uh, to be made, though, just I wonder, does it end differently? You know, this is actually Crimea. Annexing Crimea worked out pretty well for Putin. He didn't. I mean, there were some sanctions, but he didn't really have to face that much opposition. They've got right. tanks on the ground this time around. Yeah, I mean, you know, in addition to the fact that Crimea has a lot of Russians and Russian speakers and a lot of history with Russia and was given by Khrushchev to Ukraine just sort of as an internal rearrangement within Mm. the Soviet Union when it didn't really matter. Mm. The four provinces that Putin's just grabbed or claimed to grab 
you know, they have a lot of, they historically have had a lot of pro-Russian and Russian-speaking populations, but, yeah, sure. but this is a completely manufactured argument compared to Crimea, where, you know, I obviously didn't support what he did in Crimea, but you could sort of see the case for not what he did, but for a, a referendum that would allow uh, citizens of Crimea to choose between Russia and Ukraine that might have been a close call. Yeah, sure. Uh, but not so much with these four regions. I mean, the, the separatists in certain parts of Donbass in the east are in Russia-friendly territory. But especially given what's happened these last few years and these last few <laughs> yeah. months, I, I just don't think game. there's any argument that Putin can make that these four provinces belong with Russia. So I guess that's an even more stark mm-hmm. offense against sovereignty and against the UN Charter, what he's just done this week. Michael, what do you think of the sanctions, the the response today? Clearly, they kind of had this in their pocket for the next shoe to drop. Um, and I just ask myself every time, you know, we we thought we had done everything we could. Why didn't why didn't we front load the sanctions more? Because it certainly didn't slow down Vladimir Putin the way we did it. Yeah, you're right. Um, what else do we have in our pocket, by the way? Well, since it's a Friday afternoon and I like looking on the positive, I will say that the way in which we've reacted hopefully has been noticed in Beijing, because as bad as this war is in Ukraine, and it's, of course, nowhere near over and it could still escalate, uh, even worse would be a Chinese attack on Taiwan. And even though it turns out we didn't have a full range of sanctions conceptualized in advance, and you're right, we should have done better. And I, tr- I, I did some writing about this two or three years ago in which I argued for having that kind of a range of sanctions in better place and also some better resilience in the West so we could withstand the counter reaction, mm. you know, whether it's from Russia or China. Nonetheless, um, you know, it, it's been pretty painful for Russia to see that they're basically not getting any high tech goods from anywhere on the planet, even from China. And uh, and I hope the Chinese themselves have noticed yeah, right. that, uh, you know, if they ever attack Taiwan, it might take us a while to figure out how to decouple from them economically. And in some ways it would hurt us just as much as it hurt them. But we would do it because we in the West still have a certain amount of backbone and principle. Well, and we're, we're still ratcheting gonna... up things on the military side, too. It's not just the yes. sanctions. Jake Sullivan yes. today said we might consider sending tanks. Uh, do you see that? And is that any different than sending MiGs a couple of months ago when, when the Ukraine was begging for them? It's a good question whether it's that much different than sending fighter aircraft, but I think it is different ultimately than sending fighter aircraft or long range missiles that could reach into Russia, because we at least are clarifying that we're trying to create capability for Ukraine to liberate its own territory. Right, now, sure. in theory, a tank can drive a thousand miles east <laughs> or north. Or I, get, I get the point, though. Right. But it's, it needs a logistical support line. And, um, you know, it, it's not the kind of thing that can, you can just wake up one day and fire on Moscow, whereas with right. a MiG or an attack comes, you could. So I think the uh, considering uh, considering sending tanks, by the way, the Poles have already sent a lot. And so it, it's not like yeah. we would be crossing a threshold for the first time. We would just be sending traditionally Western tanks yeah. and, you know, and sending more. Uh, I think that makes sense because the Ukrainians are not going to liberate all of their currently Russian-occupied territory just with HIMARS, just with these mm-hmm. precise artillery rounds. They're going to need to be able to move right. across open terrain. So I, I think, you know, Jake Sullivan may have it right. Lastly, Michael, I have only a minute, and I appreciate your time today. The The ideas that we heard, the theories we heard come from Vladimir Putin today uh, were, were really jaw-dropping at times. I mean, he invokes Satanism uh, when talking about the U.S. Is After what you saw and heard today, is, is this... A man of sound mind? Unfortunately, 
Yes. Well, maybe it's not unfortunate. Maybe it's better than the alternative. Uh, I think he's whipped himself into a frenzy. You know, I was just rereading Bill Burns's memoirs this mm -hmm. week. Bill Burns, the CIA director who yes, had been right. ambassador to Moscow and had been undersecretary and then deputy secretary of state and has known Putin for 20 plus years. And the way Bill Burns describes Putin, he, he says his views have hardened over <laughs> the years. Yeah. And I think that's a night. Bill Burns is always a master of understatement, but he's also <laughs> yeah. a, a, ma a master of precision. And I, and I think that's a good way to look at it. I don't see any sign yet that Putin is either crazy or dying. Um, I, yes, right. Understood. Just as, yeah. And I, I think what he does is he uses in this kind of a situation, he'll use rhetoric. He'll he'll ramp it up. He'll go a little off the rails. Yeah. He himself knows that he's doing that. Um, but I don't think he's really lost his marbles. And that's probably just as well since he has 5,000 nuclear weapons. God. Michael O'Hanlon, great conversation from Brookings. Thank you. We assemble the panel next on a Friday. Rick and Jeannie, this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Satanism neo-colonialism, the ideals that drive America in the eyes of Vladimir Putin. It was quite a speech today, quite a show at the Kremlin. And we did catch a few people falling asleep. Yes, we see you, Sergey. Here's Vladimir Putin addressing what appeared to be hundreds in the room gathered for this. They want to see us as a colony. They don't want to have an equal partnership and cooperation. They don't want to see us as a free people. For them, direct threat is our philosophy. And that is why our culture and our philosophy is not to their liking. <laughs> Through a translator, of course, let's assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis together again. Rick is back with us and boy, just in time. Uh, Rick, what a what a display in Moscow this morning. Uh, but this was kind of a new level from Vladimir Putin. I mean, he was going back to Vietnam. He went back to the Korean War. He went back to Hiroshima uh, it, to frame the United States as this, you know, colonial empire that wanted to make Russia its own colony. And yes, people were falling asleep in there because it was a long speech, but most of them were nodding along with this. This is their reality. Yeah, this is Russia as we know it and the leadership. I'm not sure how much of this would be wholly supported amongst the people of Russia. Uh, we see a different reaction happening on the ground there now uh, toward the war. And yeah. uh, you can assume that we sort of fit into that Ukraine perspective. But uh, look, this is Vladimir Putin on the ropes. I mean, he's used to giving stem winders and 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 and, and bloviating about you know the past, and 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 we know his view of the past, right? It's yeah. it's 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 fascist. It's dangerous. It's it's an ugly view of the past, and and he put that on full display. I mean, I think this was as much about trying to push the West into 
pushing Ukraine to try and negotiate a settlement as it was laying the groundwork for a potential escalation. So, you know, on one hand, he's de-escalating by trying to force us to the table uh, by, you know, being so rhetorically over the top. And then on the other hand, lays down a marker in the sand that says anybody who fights on this territory is now fighting in Russia. And and we'll see that as an attack on the homeland and therefore escalate. So uh, only he could do both in one speech. And uh, and I think that's what we witnessed today. That's fascinating uh, thought, Jeannie. We've talked about this possibility. We saw it in Crimea. We've talked about it on this show. And sure enough, he schedules the the, the votes and the so-called referendums, and then followed by almost immediately the annexation. Uh, this time around, though, the world is watching in a different way than when uh, he annexed Crimea. Does this make it more dangerous or, or is it possibly uh, an off ramp that that he's paving here? You know, the speech was remarkable in so many ways. You know, I think in large part it was intended for the audience at home to show the people who are, of course, suffering. And we've seen a, a lot of pushback ag- against his his call mm-hmm. to get, uh, you know, more people inscripted into the military. He is trying to show them their sacrifices were not in vain. The it, To me, it read like an attempt at a Russian victory speech. You know, we are now victorious, if you will, as they held hands together with these, you know, faux leaders of these four annexed areas. And I agree completely with with Rick's interpretation. You know, what we're seeing here is he is saying, okay, we've gotten what we wanted. Now we're ready to go to the table. But how (laughs) on earth could Ukraine's president go to the table? And then on the other hand, he's saying, and if we don't, you know, the reality is that we are going to use all means at our disposal to keep this territory. And that includes this continued threat of nuclear attacks. So, uh, you know, it, it is a very, very difficult time. And what a show from all perspectives. Well, he really wanted to frame this as a cultural war as well. He spent a lot of time talking about the, the competing cultures here uh, and even sounded a little bit like uh, Victor Orban. At, at, I don't know if he's trying to get a book at CPAC, but Vladimir Putin's going all the way to like the trans issue here in, in schools in the United States. Listen to this. If we want in our schools primary schools for children being taught about degradation and be told that there are women and men and then they are they and that someone is having a sex change operation. No, we don't want it. For us, it is not acceptable. That's I mean, this is really getting out there, Rick. What, who is he talking to? Probably Tucker Carlson. <laughs> is that it? He wants, My he wants to go on Fox News. Tucker might be a speechwriter. Uh, <laughs> the, the reality is this is all part of this same elaborate attempt that, that, that Russia is making to divide the U.S. along cultural lines, along yeah. racial lines. I mean, we've, we've been learning even this week that there have been all kinds of efforts, you know, by the Russian Disinformation Bureau to try and penetrate uh, what's happening in our midterm elections. I mean, this this is... This is a constant struggle for truth, and Vladimir Putin is the master of the lie. And so I think that part of what this speech should do is galvanize the West, not divide it, and empower them to realize that this is not going to stop in Ukraine, right? We, we are focused on Ukraine. We right. want the free people of Ukraine to prevail. We, we want to you know, deliver anything we can, but this war yeah. will not end in Ukraine. 
Jeannie, we're out of time, but do the sanctions meet the moment this time around? You know, I, I think they are okay, and watch for him to try to conscript some Ukrainian men from these four territories into oh, the military. Oh, that's coming for sure. Very You'll dark. see those images this weekend. Uh, great to have Rick and Jeannie with us for the hour. We're going to turn to the hurricane next and head to Florida with Bloomberg's Will Wade. This is Bloomberg. The headline on the terminal says it all here. Death toll from Hurricane Ian likely to take weeks to finalize. And that is the story in Florida. Whereas I read, it's one of the first questions asked in the aftermath of a massive hurricane like Ian. And at this point, one of the hardest to answer. How many people have died? Kevin Guthrie is the head of emergency management in the state of Florida. This is from his most recent briefing. We have 12 unconfirmed fatalities in uh, Charlotte County. We have eight unconfirmed fatalities in Collier County. We have one confirmed fatality in um in Polk County. So that brings us up to 21 total. 21 here. They're trying to, when he says unconfirmed, the state is trying to verify whether they were a result of the storm or unrelated causes. But I think we know that this number is going to get worse. If you listen to Guthrie again, Florida's emergency management director, he just, uh, just paints this terrifying picture as now Coast Guard divers are starting to head underwater to continue their search. Listen. The water was up over the rooftop, right? But we had a Coast Guard rescue swimmer swim down into it and he could identify that it appeared to be uh, human remains. We do not know exactly how many. We do not know what the situation is. And before we comment on that, we, you know, we want to be transparent, but we just don't know that number. And we got a couple of other situations where we had that particular type situation. Yeah, a couple of other situations indeed. And what these rescuers are going through right now is something that we'll never know. You'll never know without doing it. Will Wade is uh, in Florida still. He's been driving around, uh, joined us yesterday from Tampa, and he's made his way to Venice, Florida. Bloomberg Energy reporter Will Wade with, of course, an eye on the electric grid and so much damage uh, that has come. Will, thank you so much for being back with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. What is it like in Venice? Well, Venice is starting to come back to life. I was in uh, Charlotte yesterday. It was pretty trashed. Venice didn't get hit as hard. Uh, Nobody here has electricity. Nobody. Nobody even knows when they're going to get electricity. But a lot of the street signals are working, and that's helping traffic flow. I'm seeing... Some of the gas stations are back in service. Yesterday, mm-hmm. there weren't any gas stations pumping gas around here, and there's huge lines of cars to get gas. I actually really struggled to fill my tank yesterday. I finally found a place in Tampa. So it's coming back to normal. I saw a car loaded with surfboards, so people have their priorities. Oh, jeez. Uh, interesting, though, that, my gosh, there's just been no progress in some areas when it comes to power. We should let people know, by the way, Venice is uh, it's Gulf Coast. It's south of St. Petersburg. Uh, south of Sarasota, that about right, Will? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a little further north of uh, Charlotte Harbor, which is where I was yesterday. So. How much of a story was flooding there? I don't think the flooding was that huge a story. What I saw was a lot of trees that had been blown down. And huh. you know what's amazing is kind of the randomness. I was talking to one woman. She had this beautiful, huge oak tree in her front yard. And it was fine, although a lot of branches fell down, big branches. But there was another oak tree in her backyard, even bigger, and that one blew down. 
So it can come by and destroy one house or one tree and leave the next one standing. Incredible. Uh, the hurricane's going to cost U.S. insurers $63 billion, uh, according to a risk modeling firm that Bloomberg spoke with today. Are, are, are their folks already going out there to assess damage at this point, or is it still kind of rescue mode across the state? You know, I don't actually know. I'm sure that it's probably both. The rescue mode people are, have a lot of work to do. It can't possibly be done. I'm sure they're still in the first phase of uh, search and rescue. I did talk to a couple people that said they had already filed insurance claims. I talked to a gentleman. He he lost his whole house. It was a, in a mobile home community, and he mm-hmm. came back yesterday morning, and the roof was gone, so it's a goner. So he's already filed for insurance, but he's planning to, to rebuild. He said he loves it there. He's never going anywhere else. <laughs> That's incredible. That's Florida. Will, thank you. I appreciate your reporting, and thanks for coming back to talk to us today. Will Wade is Bloomberg's energy reporter. What a week he's been having down there. Uh, as we reassemble the panel, just for a moment on this, we have breaking news uh, from the White House. The story I haven't even mentioned yet. It was one of the biggest yesterday. Well, it's not a story anymore. Joe Biden just signed the CR. So guess what, everyone? The government's not going to shut down at midnight. Not that anyone said that would happen. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. It's been interesting watching Joe Biden these last 48 hours as he navigates uh, government funding, a war in Ukraine, you know, the situation with Russia, everything else has been going on. But also this hurricane, uh, it's got to be a good moment for him knowing that, uh, Rick, he's he's been doing okay on the phone with Ron DeSantis and there's no government shutdown to worry about. Well, it's never a good moment when you have a hurricane devastating a big state like Florida. And so uh, all efforts, I'm sure, are underway as they have been in past administrations to do everything they can to unload resources into the state and manage um, uh, what's happening there now. Because obviously the storm itself is really devastating and and difficult, but the Mm -hmm. aftermath can also cost lives and be very, very tough on on the uh, people of Florida. So, and and now South Carolina and, and more. So um, I know Joe Biden is probably the most empathetic president we've ever had, and I'm sure he feels for the people there. Yeah. But look, I mean, you know, the the White House knew that this uh, uh, spending bill was going to get passed. They knew at the end of the day it would probably happen at the last minute. Uh, and so I don't think that ruffled their their feathers very much. Uh, I, I would say they probably more ruffled uh, by the the hurricane than, than anything they've done lately, uh, because obviously this has just massive consequences on a state that, mm-hmm. frankly, is an incredibly important state uh, for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Has this been a good week for Joe Biden, Jeannie? Yeah, I mean, I think it has. He's been, as you mentioned, dealing with, an, a, you know, a number of issues that, you know, you can imagine would take somebody, you know, the entire news cycle in, in a regular time period. And we've been dealing, he's been dealing with all of them at once. And he has done well, I think, so far in this storm, particularly by the state of Florida and his, his discussions with uh, Ron DeSantis. All right, we'll get back to this with Rick and Jeannie on Bloomberg Sound on the fastest hour in politics Coming up, we'll stare down the barrel of the next Supreme Court session that starts next week. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for being with us. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden says he is going to Florida and Puerto Rico. We don't have details from the White House on these trips, and I suspect that they'll be they'll be uh, announced with relatively little notice as we just don't have a sense of when it'll even be safe for him to go to Florida. Never mind not get in the way. Puerto Rico is a whole other matter, though, and a much more complex uh, travel assignment for the White House staff. We reassembled the panel with Jeannie Shanzano. And Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors, our signature panel. Jeannie, I wonder how important it is for Joe Biden to make both of those trips. Uh, and, and namely, obviously, Florida is going to be done pretty quickly, I'd say, in the next week or two. But Puerto Rico is another matter uh, and something that he needs to make good on now that he's put it out there. That's right. It's important he go to both. And it, it is going to be really difficult for him, particularly, as you mentioned, to make that Puerto Rico trip and to do it safely. Um, and of course, always leaders as they go into these situations have got to be careful that they are not impeding any sort of rescue missions or, or any right. of the efforts down there. So I know the Florida one he will be able to do, as you said, quickly. I think the Puerto Rico one is a little bit more difficult. And then, of course, we are hearing some really, really difficult signs out of Cuba. Cuba as well. Um, and so, you know, he has not said anything about going <laughs> he there. He will not but be going there. He's not going to go there. But there are a lot of protests down there. And, you know, people have been really violently hurt in the last week by this storm. Well, I bet you Jim McGovern would like to get back down there as soon as possible. But Rick, when you think about that trip to Puerto Rico, uh, it, the first thing that pops into everyone's mind is Donald Trump throwing paper towels. It, there's more than the logistical challenges here. There are the political ones. How does he prepare to make that a trip that works for him yeah these uh these big storms can be uh really terminal to a lot of people's political career uh uh, remind everybody about george bush and katrina it was the beginning of the end of his presidency um you look at uh, uh, what uh happened to chris christie when he hugged uh that's right uh, president obama when he came there and sort of ended his national ambitions uh so yeah it's it's fraught with political uh trouble and and yet i think you know this president probably more than any other who's he's been around such a long time as vice president for eight years he's visited so many of these kind of uh um, uh, challenging environments uh, that I think in this case experience will be very meaningful for him. And look, you can't do any worse than 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 his predecessor uh, 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 Trump throwing paper towels and you know things like that into a crowd. And and this, of course, is after he'd already beat up the people of Puerto Rico by insisting that uh, he wasn't going to spend any federal resources right. on on their recovery. So. This will be a snap compared to uh, what they've experienced in the most recent past. Yeah, I guess uh, the the comparison is favorable. Uh, I want to ask you both about next week, and that's, of course, uh, the new term of the Supreme Court. And there's a lot involved here Uh, today, though it was the investiture ceremony for, of course, the new justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, as you hear now, walking out onto the steps of the Supreme Court. With the Chief Justice, and they spent some time, you know, making small talk while they had their pictures taken, John Roberts, then he peeled off and her husband 
met her there for a couple of photos as well. They made their way off. And that where she was sworn in already. Uh, this was the uh, sort of formal ceremony. And then things begin on Monday with, of course, Justice Jackson involved here. And we've talked a bit about this uh, this new term uh, that starts on Monday. Jeannie, there is, you know, coming off of what nobody could have predicted this year, particularly with the Roe ruling. Uh, there are a lot of concerns about what we might learn this time. What is important to you as you look ahead? You know, the first Monday in October, always one of my favorite times of the year, Joe Matthew, as the Supreme Court takes its seat for Listen the new term. Oh, I love it. But this term, it's, you know, a little bit different. I mean, I think the Supreme Court has been in the public consciousness in a way that it hasn't been for many, many years at this point. Yeah. We are facing, you know, less than six weeks to the midterm in which their last year's, last term's decision in the Dobbs case is going to hang over what happens in that midterm. So, you you know, I think as we look with a new justice, as you mentioned there, I don't think we're going to see, quite frankly, much of a shift. I think we're going to see a lot of 6-3 decisions are going to be continuing. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't forget that they have already accepted and are going to hear some really politically fraught cases, including this well, right. one. Yeah, this this one on elections, which promises if they do go 6-3, as some people expect, to really change the way we do elections in this country. I have to admit, I thought as the academic here at the table that you would have pointed to uh, the use of affirmative action in college admissions, that's that's going to reverberate across the country I, either way. Yeah, that is. And of course, that also raises a question about whether they respect their own precedents or not as they look at issues of affirmative action. So that's yeah. one of several big cases they have coming up this term. We're going to be talking a lot more about the Supreme Court, it seems like, uh, in the months ahead here, uh, Rick. This is yet another sort of third rail when you consider affirmative action coming off the term they just had. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, these guys have found a way to work themselves into the political lexicon of America, right? You used to think that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court would sort of function in a political way, that they yeah. were behind the pearly gates of justice. And, you know, really those things were uh, sort of torn down by this last uh, this last term where they entered into so many very, very uh, fraught political debates. And this is, I think, a little less charged than uh, last year, but nonetheless will have a pretty significant impact. And, and you know, these kinds of cases you were talking about, affirmative action, uh, Jeannie's, you know, talking about these voting rights laws Act. governing voting rights and giving mm -hmm. absolute control by the legislatures. I mean, they have a they have a significant impact on how things happen in this country functionally. So these aren't just esoteric things that the Supreme Court are doing and not going to affect everyday lives. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, just October is, is going to be packed here, Jeannie. Uh, how important... Uh, will it be for the country to get used to uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson? Uh, it, it's been a minute since we've had a new justice, obviously, that brings us back to the last president here. And uh, it's something that so many people have looked forward to. Are, are, we, are we beyond that point of this story here? And she's going to become, you know, part of this thing we call the Supreme Court? Or will she stand out and, and draw more attention as an individual? 
You know, she is a formidable justice and she, you know, is the first female African-American on the court. Um, you know, she is, uh, you know, answering the, the hopes and prayers of so many Americans as she takes yeah. this important seat. She's going to be there an awfully long time. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that despite the president's promise to think about reforming the court, there's been very little discussion of that in the administration. So no sort of decisions, as you will, in terms of, you know, whether to allow these people uh, to, to, you know, mandatory retirement, those kinds of things. So she will be there for many, many years. And, you know, she's entering a court where she will be in the clear minority. And so also entering a court in which, you know, the American public is really questioning the legitimacy of this institution. Four out of 10 Americans feeling like it is an institution that is run by politics versus objective law. That's a big problem for the court. We heard the chief justice try to walk it back this summer, but even his own Justice uh, Elena Kagan uh, said she disagreed with him on that. Pretty remarkable. Uh, Rick, I guess maybe a better way to ask that question is, you know, as 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 an historic member and and newest addition to the court, will she be uh, under a greater spotlight as a new justice and as an historic one? You know, it's hard to tell at this point. Um, There's been so much change on the Supreme Court over the last few years that, um, you know, you're going to need sharp elbows to get noticed in this court. Uh, There are going to be a lot of new justices who are going to be fighting for the ability to write opinions and and stake out turf. Uh, Mm -hmm. The reality, based on a 6-3 split of the court, uh, is if she's going to write any opinions, they'll be in a minority. So, I think this court is so new uh, that it's going to be a while before American public really gets a sense of the court. Obviously, there's a really negative reaction to the court's last term, yeah. uh, worse numbers than I've seen in the court in 35 years. And and so this court has to make decisions as to whether it is going to become more uh, engaged with the public in order to kind of repair that damage, because that damage speaks to the credibility that the court has and its rulings and the impact the rulings have in society. In the past, they've been sacrosanct. Uh, I'm not sure they can count on that now. The Voting Rights Act, Clean Water Act case, and uh, the race-conscious admissions, or if you will, affirmative action at some universities will all be heard in October. Uh, So we'll be talking a lot more about that coming up i just wanted to remind everybody uh that this is starting on monday boy how about it uh great moment today at the white house we try to end the week my goodness on a a positive note joe biden uh, held an event here with the first lady to celebrate the jewish new year they did this this afternoon i want to bring you into the east room with a couple of words to think about here just consider this as you're driving home as you walk into the weekend here's joe biden Late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, who passed away two years ago, once said that the most important lesson of the high holidays is that nothing, nothing is broken beyond repair. Nothing is broken beyond repair. It's never too late to change and to be better. I've always believed that message, and I also think it's universal. And we've emerged from one of our most difficult moments in our history. I believe nothing is broken beyond repair. And there's a lot we can do to change things and bring people together. Nothing is broken beyond repair. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.